0: The biggest issues that are here is really first step is to take stock of what they have. John didn't mention much about the preferential treatment rule, but the things that are common practices in the private fund industry, like side letters and preferential redemption rights or preferential information rights, are now things that can't be done the same way that they've traditionally
1: been done. They have double trouble of Dose John's. John Gebauer, and John Vanderwall, both from Comply. We talk about some of the current issues involved for private investment funds and other regulated industries. I know you'll enjoy this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. As we move into 2024, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Well, if you have and you have any questions, please contact me. I can help. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and you're in for a treat today, because not only do we have double trouble, we have double Johns. Johns Gebauer and John Vanderwall. Gentlemen, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you. Good to be with you, Tom. So I'm going to start with you, John Gebauer. Could you tell us your uh, professional background and your current role?
0: Uh, Sure. Happy to. Uh, So I've I am uh, currently the Chief Regulatory Officer for Comply. Uh, prior to that, I've uh, been with Nat- National Regulatory Services, or NRS, uh, for the past 31 years and was uh, president of that organization uh, when we joined with uh, ComplySci just about two years ago to form Comply.
1: So John, Gebauer, what does a chief regulatory officer do? Well, uh, funny thing is, one of the
0: things that I do is make sure that I stay up on things like uh, the the rules that are changing. Uh, when I when I took on this role, little did I know that there was going to be mountains of change coming down down the roll. Uh, but uh, we're 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 having fun keeping track of it. And uh, uh, separately, comply has a uh, uh, a regulatory services arm where we we do consulting and education for the marketplace, and that all uh, reports to me. And John Vanderwall is one of
1: our uh, senior consultants, so uh, we're we're happy to be here. Well, Mr. Vanderwall, that would seem to be a natural segue into me asking you: Could you tell me a little bit about your professional background and your current role at Comply?
2: sure um, excuse me currently i'm senior director in what we call compliance advisory which is part of regulatory services um, i've been with the firm let's see nrs since 2014 prior to that i was with oddly enough compliance advisory services <laughs> for 12 years um, i was cco in industry for a couple of years Prior to that, I was with, when it was the NASD, I was a a senior examiner out of uh, San Francisco's district office. And I've worked in a whole host of environments in the financial services business, both on the sell side and the buy side. Um, So yeah, right now I, um, again, as as I said, I'm senior director, uh, but that puts me in the field. I do a lot of audit work, exams, review of rules, Compliance program reviews um, for uh, clients that are assigned to my team.
1: So, I'd like to now turn to the private fund reform rule and ask you guys uh, what this rule is and what um, basically. Well, let's start. What what is the rule itself?
0: Well, let me let me start that out and uh, just say first off, it's somewhat of a a misnomer because it's really seven rules in one. The SEC gave us quite a, quite a prize in, in, in this, this rule. Uh, What they've done is looked at the practices uh, that they've, they've found in the industry. uh, And they've uh, come up with a set of new rules that they think will uh, address some of the concerns that they have. Uh, Now, this is, Uh, broken into the quarterly statement rule, the private fund audit rule, uh, advisor-led secondaries rule, the books and records rule, uh, restricted activities rule, and uh, the preferential treatment rule, and not to be left out, the compliance rule, um, which applies to all advisors, not just private fund advisors. Uh, It is... Chock full of really important changes uh, that uh, is going to cause uh, a lot of ch- uh, issues and and concerns for the private fund industry over the next uh, two years. And uh, there's a lot a lot that we can talk about in in all of those sections. Um, John, I'll I'll turn to you and see if there's something in those in those rules that you want to highlight.
2: Yeah, you, you know, a the, the couple of things that have come up in working with and talking with clients and uh, other compliance professionals, really on the audit rule and the quarterly statement rule seem to be uh, where there's a lot of angst. Um, the private fund rule, I'm sorry, uh, the private fund audit rule is very similar to the custody rule, um, where if I'm a private fund advisor, I can use the private fund exemption and have an annual financial audit done by uh, an independent um, um, accounting firm or auditing firm that's registered with the PCAOB. And so that, that doesn't change for any firms that are currently using the audit provision and the custody rule. However, if you're an advisor to a private fund that's been relying on the surprise examination component of the custody rule, you're no longer going to be able to do that. And that could be very costly for these firms, um, especially when they have multiple separate funds that they're managing. Um, On the quarterly statement rule, uh, questions I'm getting really revolve around valuation um, because you have you have to deliver your quarterly statements within 45 days of the quarter end. Um, And then for the, your fiscal year end one, you have 90 days. Well, the audit, the the custody rule and and the, the the audit rule still give me 120 days, but now for my fiscal year end, I have 90 days. So people are assessing and evaluating whether they can come up with accurate valuations in a timely fashion for their private funds to be able to meet these requirements. Um, so there's a little angst around that.
1: How do you guys suggest or maybe even counsel clients on the implementation of these rules? Is it with a mixture of policies and procedures, train, excuse me, changing? Is it training? Is it monitoring their staff to ensure compliance? Uh, all of the above, none of the above, or something different?
0: Uh, mostly all of the above. Uh, the, uh, the the biggest issues uh, that are here is is really first step is to take stock of what they have. So uh, John didn't mention much about the preferential treatment uh, rule, uh, but the things that are common practices in the private fund industry, like side letters and preferential redemption rights or preferential information rights, are now things that can't be done the same way that they've traditionally been done. So the only way to understand how you're going to proceed is to know where 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 the scope is right now within your, your current customer base, your investor base. Um, and so we're, we're advising firms to take inventory of all of the agreements that they have uh, to do a gap analysis and find out what needs to change Um, in their existing documentation before they can then create their action plan for moving forward. In many cases, uh, there's going to require, despite the fact that the rule talks about some legacy uh, accommodations, we think that almost every uh, firm is going to need to review and repaper almost all of their agreements anyway. Um, So, that's a complicated, long process uh, for anyone, especially true for private funds. Um, and so that's the that's the step we're telling them to get started on right now is that that review of contracts and and customer agreements and a gap analysis to to decide what their go forward plan is.
1: Is this something you feel like uh, CCOs and or their staff can handle, or this, does this type of project really lend itself to outside expertise, either in terms of the expertise or the resource issue?
2: Well, at at certain firms, it won't be too much of an issue, although there are things that they may need outside counsel's help with on interpretations or guidance on. But many of my clients have been getting together with members of finance, customer service, legal, legal, portfolio management, and putting together a task force to tackle these issues, especially the larger fund complexes. This needs to be an all hands on deck type of a situation because if you're a large fund, if you're an advisor to a a large private fund or private funds in aggregate, um, you only have 12 months to comply with the preferential treatment standards, the the restricted activities rule, and the, um, the other one, the advisor that secondaries rule. You have 18 months for the private fund audit rule and the quarterly statements, but still, that's not a lot of time when you're talking about the amount of lifting they have to do. So you, you start by taking, like John said, taking note of what you have, taking inventory of your agreements. You're gonna need that in two sections. You're gonna need it in the, in the, court, in the statement um, presentation uh, to reference governing documents. You're gonna need it for the preferential treatment rule. Um, you're going to need it for the restricted activities rule because that deals with the fees and expenses that are getting allocated or charged to your funds and how that's handled. Uh, there's disclosure requirements. There's consent requirements uh, for certain of the aspects of that rule, the restricted activities rule. So you got to get your arms around it.
0: I think there's also uh, a bit of uh, un- unknown. At the moment, there's some there's some uncertainties in the rules. Um, I'll use one that uh, has come up. There's a in the preferential treatment rule. There's a a clause that says uh, that you can't have uh, treatments uh, that are are uh, preferential unless they apply to all investors of the fund or a similar pool of assets. Yeah. And it's the or similar pool of assets. Is still meandering its way to what a, a commonly accepted interpretation is. It could be very narrowly interpreted, or it can be very broadly interpreted, and uh, that's the that is going to impact uh, how you move forward, especially for larger, more complex advisors. Um, and so, to answer your question, uh, yeah, I think almost everyone that I know of is seeking outside guidance with uh, uh, attorneys and consultants for uh, interpretation help. Uh, They are seeking outside guidance for best practice policies and procedures to be developed. Um, And some of them are seeking input for uh, actually helping them execute some of this work, some of the examination of the contracts, and figuring out uh, what what that is, there's uh, law firms that can help out quite a bit on that for them. Uh, reading through all their all their their documents uh, and coming up with a gap analysis for it.
1: Jens, I'd like to change the focus a little bit to insider trading, and maybe start with: Are there uh, any recent uh, noteworthy cases on insider trading, and maybe even extend it back to 20. 20- 23 that uh, you guys are counseling clients on?
0: Yeah, I'll start that off. Uh, um, so there are plenty of uh, cases. Uh, it's been one of the, the areas that's been highlighted in the examinations and enforcement by the SEC. A lot of them have to do with uh, material non-public information uh, leakage within firms. Um, but interestingly enough, there's there's one that I like to talk about that actually shows no wrongdoing, uh, but is a cautionary tale I think for uh, for the participants in this market, and it, it's uh, it would be called the Jordan Meadows case, whereby uh, uh, Jordan Meadows was a a trader at a broker dealer uh, who was dating a administrative assistant at an investment bank. And uh, that administrative assistant was in charge of setting the schedule for the investment committee to, de- to determine a uh, final disposition of a, of a transaction at the, at the investment bank. Um, during the pandemic, uh, they uh, were living together in an apartment and uh, it Jordan Meadows came to know that uh, this woman would walk the dog at a certain time and not log out of her computer. And during that time, he would investigate, uh, open her schedule and see what was on the agenda and what the agenda notes were for the investment committee meetings. Um, So, for example, if that investment committee was deciding whether to formally proceed with the acquisition of some company by another company, uh, public companies, uh, then that would that would create an opportunity for uh, trading ahead of the, uh, the transaction, uh, which Mr. Meadows and several of his friends did. Um, and uh, so neither the broker-dealer that Jordan Meadows worked for nor the investment bank uh, that the administ- administrative assistant worked for Uh, was fined or even cited for doing anything wrong. Uh, However, Jordan Meadows was, but there's a confluence of cybersecurity um, and uh, uh, insider information, uh, uh, safeguarding, uh, MNPI information, uh, that all happened in this case. And uh, I, I tell customers that it's something that you have to really think about going one step beyond what the obvious is and look a little bit deeper into your your operations and see where leakage of, of that kind of information might might be. Um, so interesting case, um, but no, again, no wrongdoing, George.
1: So what are some of the key compliance solutions, if I could maybe pick up on that last point you raised, uh, John Gebauer, what are some of the key compliance solutions, you see, uh, that this case gives us as lessons is it to really perform a deep dive risk assessment or uh, some other uh, strategy?
0: Yeah, so uh, yeah, definitely a risk assessment, but I, I also think um, uh, there are there were probably signs, and, and unfortunately, we have no no uh, close information, so we don't know how this was uh, was found. Uh, it was uh, interesting but there's also uh, things that possibly could have happened at the broker dealer to identify uh, un, uh, uh, unrealistic gains that were being had by Mr Meadows trading um, and uh, investigate that so uh, trade monitor personal trade monitoring is is something that, uh, certainly comes into play for for this case. On the investment bank side, uh, I would I would expect that cybersecurity policies and and general IT uh, security policies uh, should have noted uh, that the uh, the the information was being uh, accessed uh, inappropriately. Um, so uh, you know things were being emailed to. Uh, uh, to other accounts, um, uh, so there there were places where email monitoring and communications off channel communications monitoring could have could have also caught things. So those are the two places where I think uh, th- th- we could have em- employed tools
1: to detect and and deal with this. Uh, as as can you have a tool or a perhaps even a tech solution that encompasses more simply than just a tool which could take a look a lo- look at a large amount of data to identify any red flags?
0: Well, you can. Um, and uh, I be- my, uh, my belief is that many firms do. Um, they're deployed on the trading side of the house rather than on the compliance side of the house. And I think we're evolving over time where these models and, and these, this type of technology is now uh, being deployed uh, in the back office on compliance issues too. I think there's, all, there's a lot of activity in this market uh, currently on AI and um, machine learning that uh, offers qu- quite a lot of promise uh, to both uh, stop and detect uh, inappropriate in- uh, activity, but also to reduce the cost of compliance. Um, I can't say that I think that these are very mature, but they are emerging. Uh, so we're we're gonna maybe next year when we talk about this, they will have emerged and and made uh, made a, a significant impact on the market. But it's 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 new it's new right now.
1: I'd like to turn now to pay to play and ask as we move into the, if not perpetual presidential election campaigning cycles, at least we've got one 18 months away, or I guess less than 18 months away. And why is the pay-to-play issue so important to be identified as a potential red flag or risk uh, leading up to the 2024 presidential election across the U.S.? John, you want to start that? Oh, well,
2: just, I mean, the amount of fundraising and campaign donations that happened uh, in the midterms of 2022 were about $2 billion more than they were in 2018. And we expect that to even be higher um, for you know, our, our advisory clients that work with uh, state and local governments and agencies type clients, managing their pensions, things of that nature. It's a great concern because if you make a political donation um, to somebody who can impact the decision of you getting a client, um, you, you, you can't get paid for two years. <laughs> so you wanna be on top of it first and foremost, but it, it has severe, reper, severe repercussions uh, if you don't detect this practice whether it's directly or indirectly contributed to somebody's campaign. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's a big risk, especially if that's your marketplace.
0: Another area that I would say uh, is related to today's political environment is the polarization that's out there has made it less uh, popular for people to discuss uh, politics in the, in the office environment um, and I think there's a resistance to reporting um, any donations for fear of that impacting how you're viewed by, uh, by, by your organization. Um, so that has that added increased pressures for firms to be able to identify and locate these donations, whether they're reported or not. And... Uh, there are tools that will allow you, your firms to uh, search and monitor uh, public databases for their employees um, such, so that they can then um, deal with the, the, the donations, whether it was reported by the employee or not. So I, I think that's, that's something we're seeing more, much more of, uh, unreported uh, donations by staff and firms turning to tools uh, more frequently to try and solve that particular problem.
1: Beyond setting policies and perhaps procedures and the training on those, what's the role of the compliance professional in this arena?
2: Well, I I can speak to that. Um, It it has to be a firm-wide effort, for one. I mean, you have to get buy-in from the top down. but wearing your compliance hat, you have, other than policies and procedures, you have to be proactive in trusting by verifying. And that's why I think these tools are very useful uh, for me if I'm in that role to be able to run searches so I can verify and document that I'm staying on top of that. Uh, if you fail to do that and somebody makes a contribution, you really don't have any cover. Um, you're, you're not a supervisor, right? There's going to be someone else for that. But you have to do checks to make sure that they're complying with your, your pay-to-play program.
1: What uh, do you guys see uh, as the, uh, around the issue of pre-clearance in this area as well? Well, it's going to depend
2: on who your clients are. Um, whether you want to go after that kind of business or not. Um, so that, that's a big determinant on um, whether you would need pre-clearance or not. Uh, some firms will only allow giving, you know, uh, at the de minimis levels, right? If it's someone you can vote for it's what 350. Uh, if you can't vote for them it's 150. Um, uh, they're all doing two year lookbacks when they hire somebody uh, to make sure, that uh, they don't have potential issues. But I think preclearance is a good thing if you're in the govy space or you plan to be. You, you don't know where your clients are gonna come from all the time, but if that's a space you think you might wanna get into, then you wanna have preclearance involved so you can, help, you can help your associated persons comply with the rule. Not everybody understands. Like, can I give, can I give to a presidential election? Yes, you can unless that person that's running happens to be a state or local official that can impact the decision as to whether you get a a, 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 a Gavi client or not. So it's it's helpful to have it in place to be able to help associate persons understand what's going on and not inadvertently make a mistake. Um, and training, yes, absolutely. Training will help a lot too. As you mentioned earlier. And I think that's just to gain great, a greater understanding of what I'm responsible for, not just myself, but my spouse, right? or partner, right? Living in the same household. They need to understand that as well.
0: It's it's critical for risk management, Tom. Uh, not everyone at the firm is gonna know very, very deeply all of the customers that the firm has, nor all the prospects that they have. And uh, by doing, pre clearance. Um, that's giving the firm an opportunity to uh, avoid risk that may emerge downstream if uh, a prospect, for example, is, a can, uh, is in a place where uh, they're, be, they're benefiting from that donation. So uh, it, it's, it's really a, it's a great practice. It's, it's, uh, it saves the firm uh, reputational risk downstream, um, and uh, potentially having to unwind uh, those 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 situations. So, um, yeah, we would always always recommend that pre-clearance be part of part of the the policy and procedure.
1: As we move to our final segment, I'd like to ask you to maybe put on your Carnac the Magnificent headwear and uh, look down the road a little bit about some. Uh, Future rules you might expect to be adopted. Uh, so let me start with cybersecurity. Uh, do you see cybersecurity rules uh, in in the cards for uh, your arena?
0: Oh, absolutely. There's there there are uh, several measures, uh, at state and federal level, that are uh, proposed at the moment, and uh, I think at least the the SEC's rule. Uh, for advisors and funds, uh, is very likely to be adopted uh, before the end of the year. I think that would that would certainly be one of the uh, the, the top contenders for the next uh, critical area that the, the SEC turns their attention to. Um, and like uh, all new rules, it's going to it's going to cause Cost and implementation issues for uh, for the for all of the the registrants that it applies to. Um, we'll see how, how it goes, but uh, yeah, that's that's definitely on my 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 hit list for the next ones.
1: Well, usually paired together with uh, cybersecurity is data privacy. I'm not sure that pairing is always warranted, but I wanted to follow up cybersecurity or data protection with data privacy? Where do you see that down the road?
0: Uh, closely coupled, uh, there is uh, there is a, a second data privacy-specific rule um, and it extends, for example, the definition of PII that we've all come to get comfortable with. Uh, over the last oh, maybe dozen years or so, um, and uh, I think the the biggest concern I have with the, the proposed rule is that it 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 makes PII so broad that it it it, in, it captures so much more data and information that it, again it will uh, increase the chaos and the implementation costs that are required. Um, for poss- probably little gain in, in actually safeguarding. Um, actually safeguarding, you know, making sure that we safeguard and protect the information uh, that we currently consider PII would be uh, adequate, I think,
1: at, the, at, this, at this venture. Let me pick on that word chaos to introduce yeah. the next area, ESG. Will we have chaos? Will we have certainty? Will we have perhaps both?
2: Well, I don't, I don't think we're going to have chaos. I, I think what the SEC has found and they've published in, in risk alert is that firms are out there advertising or promoting or marketing that they're an ESG advisor. Um, and then when they go in to see these, what's it, greenwashing or something, when they go in to see, uh, visit the firms and, you know, I ask this every time I go into a firm when I'm doing an annual review, if, if a firm is promoting that, say, okay, show me your documents and policies and procedures that demonstrate that you're an ESG advisor specifically, what do you do to screen, you know, accounts to screen investments now? And are you documenting that? Is that process consistent with what you're marketing out there? Um, so it, it's a big area. I, I think that there need to be more controls and more requirements for disclosure and policies and procedures, uh, in that space. And I, I feel that that will eventually come down the pipeline What in the next six months.
1: How about outsourcing by investment advisors?
2: Yeah. The, the due diligence rules, how I like to refer to it. Um, and, I think in those cases, I mean, we've been, we've been advising our clients to not only do initial due diligence, but also on at least an annual basis for riskier providers to revisit their due diligence and the effectiveness and performance of the vendors that they're using. But one of the major issues with this version of the proposal, the rule proposal, is it's going to require that you go to your vendor's and have them agree to certain things about books and records that are required if you're an SEC advisor. I don't don't think Microsoft's going to change their agreement to to work with me on that one. So this, this is going to be a sticky area. We'll see what happens with that.
1: Well, gents, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I wanted to ask each of you if our listeners wanted more information on yourselves or any of the topics we've touched on what would be the best place or places for them to go?
0: Yeah, the, the, the best place is either LinkedIn, uh, search for the Comply uh, business, and uh, the Comply.com website uh, has all the information about uh, the the platforms, uh, the consulting services, and the educational uh, offerings that comply can uh, provide to investment advisors, private funds, broker-dealers, uh, pretty much all registered uh, market participants, um, and uh, uh, lots of information and resources on 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 that, those locations too.
1: Well, Mr. Vanderwall and Mr. Gebauer, I wanted to thank you both for taking the time to visit with me, uh, and I hope we can continue this conversation.
0: Thank
1: you, Tom. Look forward to it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this first episode of the award-winning FCPA Compliance Report in 2024. This will be my 12th year of producing and hosting this podcast, so I wanted to thank all of my loyal listeners who've been with me. All are part of this journey. I will continue to bring you some of the top stories around the FCPA, compliance, and other issues that will help make your compliance program the best it has ever been.